Ruth 1, this is God's word. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us, and it's absolutely true. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we, we need your help to well, make sense of our Uh, troubles, our trials, and our difficulties. And so we thank you that we can talk like Naomi and say, you have given us bitter circumstances uh, to deal with, to drink. So I ask this morning as we look at this passage that you would teach us to lament honestly, uh, that you would, that the Holy Spirit would be here to show us Jesus, uh, the light of the world, who leads us out of darkness and into his light. And I ask that your truth, your story, the, the best news we will ever hear uh, would be real and personal and powerful. And that you would comfort the afflicted as we, as we look at this. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So I was reading this week Psalm 77 and getting ready for, for Naomi. And one of the the astounding things that I, it, Psalm 77 says is this. Whenever I think of God, I groan. I cry. And when I meditate on him, I grow faint. I get weaker. I fall apart. I mean, it's the very opposite of, this is not a good marketing ploy. And I know we come to Naomi and we think about testimonies of believers. We as Christians in the church love to hear how 
the great saints of old have overcome and how, how God worked something good out of the tragedy that happened. Um, and so because of that, when we hear Naomi say, I'm bitter, we have a hard time. We have a hard time coming alongside of her. We have a hard time saying, well, it'll be okay. We have a hard time letting her be honest. Because God has made them drink bitter circumstances, and we, don't, we as looking into Naomi's life 3,000 years later have clear perspective. But she has no idea why. Depression threatens to swallow them up because of what they've been through. Even as she talks about God, you get the sense that despair is right around the corner. And so as, as we enter into the book of Ruth, it really is a 3,000-year-old story that helps us make sense even of our lives here today. I mean, to quote Spurgeon, I mean, who they hear among us who's human is not, it's free of sorrow. I mean, if you search the whole world, you're going to find a thorn and a thistle in every corner afflicting every human heart. It doesn't matter whether you're American, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what part of the world you go to. And so, as we look at this, we need Naomi not only to teach us how to grieve, um, we can learn from her, but also as Christians. And Paul tells us to comfort the, the afflicted with the comfort we have received. Um, this is going to help us better care for one another. At least that's my prayer. And the, the encouraging part is Naomi's story, she experiences these things just like we do. Um, she doesn't have an angel come alongside of her and say, this is why you lost your husband and your sons. She has her understanding of who God is. She has her circumstances. And she just tries to make sense of it as she puts one foot in front of the other. She doesn't see. She has to live by faith. And so, as Jesus said, we're going to face troubles. We need to make sense of these, these things. And, and some of us are in it. Those of you who are young, you will be in it. Um, there's been, when you see it all the times in the news, that's why people choose not to, to watch the news. I mean, there was a haunting picture of this little girl from Syria covered in dust and, and blood. I mean, maybe you saw that. I mean, it's everywhere. How do you deal with that? How do you make sense of your understanding of who God is and your circumstances? How do you hold those two things together? And I mentioned Spurgeon because he's a good teacher. He went through it. Uh, he was 22 years old. Um, he had just recently been married, had two twin little boys who were a month old, so life was busy. And on a Sunday morning at 22, he was already preaching to thousands in London. This is in the 1800s, if you don't know. Um, he was the first megachurch pastor before there were megachurches. But on this particular morning, as he's, this is right at the beginning of his ministry, on this particular morning, somebody thought it would be funny to yell fire, which started a stampede, a panic. Seven people were trampled to death. 28 were severely injured. And Spurgeon tells a story of coming back to the pulpit two weeks later and saying, I don't even know how I can stand here and preach. 
when I thought two weeks would be enough to, to help me get over this, God gave me strength. And he, as a pastor, as a Christian, as who we in seminary would call him the prince of preachers, he's somebody to aspire to. I mean, he, he reached all kinds of people for Christ, but he did so through a lifetime of depression and suffering. He never got over this. Sometimes he would just look at the Bible and cry. And his wife said, I don't even know if he's ever going to preach again. There were times where he struggled physically. He had chronic pain his whole life. There were times where his body just fought against him. And he found himself in the darkness, not because of anything he'd done. He just, well, we would call it a chemical imbalance and depression. And so he would say things like this, that the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in the mind there are bottomless pits. Your body can bear a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over and over again each hour. It's a poetic, painful way to say this is what life is like. When you can hear his pain, you can hear Naomi's pain. How do you make sense of a God who says, I am sovereign, and a God who says, I love you? What are you going to do with that? And for all of us, the last thing by way of introduction, this is how God gets our attention. I mean, frankly, the, the first time we go through these, this pain, we, that's where we have to start to ask. Do I, am I in this for God or am I in this for me when, he, when my circumstances aren't working out the way I want them to? C.S. Lewis said it this way, that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he screams at us. Yeah. He shouts at us in our pain. It's his megaphone. It's God's megaphone to wake up a deaf world. That's a lot to start with. But we need to enter in to, to see what, how does Naomi hold these th- two things together? God's sovereignty and God's mercy. And how does she lament that? How does she process it as she's going through it? So let's, let's look at it. First point is that Naomi has been battered by the sovereign hand of God. So if you look at this introduction... I'll give you the definitions of the names. You can find them in your bulletin. But it's such a great storyteller. I mean, they, just by giving you the names of the Hebrew, it, it, it's using irony to, to draw you in to Naomi's circumstance. So when we talk about in the days when the judges ruled, this is, these are the days when almost nobody believed God was all-powerful and that God was king. Right, and then... Then you have one of this, this, the characters, Elimelech. His name is My God is King. So he's one of the few. Naomi's name means pleasant. And then they have two children, weak, Malon, and Kilion, or frail, or mortal. You know, he's saying he, he's human. It's, it's a great description. And then Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. It's the place where God provides And so if you go back and read the introduction, you have this graphic picture of saying, in the days when almost nobody believed God was king, you had a guy named Elimelech, 
whose name was My God is King, and they were from the town of Bethlehem where God provided. And in the town where God provided, well, there was famine, there was no food. And they had this family. Naomi was pleasant. They had these two kids. Things were well. But because of the famine, they moved to Moab, where my God is king died. And eventually, Malon, weak and frail, um, lived out the descriptions of their name. And they too died. And so Naomi's left without a, her two sons and her husband, living in a foreign world, with two foreign daughters-in-law trapped. Nobody to take care for her, take care of her. And you see the irony, you see what the, the narrator is trying to get you to think, think about? That if God is king, why does her life look like this? We don't know the, the length of time between, we know it was about 10 years in Moab, we don't know how long in between Elimelech's funeral and, and Malon and Kilion. But you have to be reminded that a son in the ancient world was more than just a son. He was their hope. He was their future. He was their everything. I mean, it's like life insurance, social security, and retirement all wrapped up in one. Maybe this will help. I mean, <laughs> there was a survey done asking fathers and husbands, you are on a boat with your mother, your wife, and your daughter, and it's sinking, you can only save one, whom would you save? Your mother, your wife, or your daughter? And so that question was asked to Americans. And about 60% of the men said they would save their daughter. 40% said they would save their wife. Nobody said they would save their mother. <laughs> this is not a good Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> but when they asked those same questions to men from the Middle East, from Saudi Arabia, 100% of them said, I, I would save my mother. So it really is hard to overstate from our perspective the bond between Naomi and Malon and Kilion. I mean, when Elimelech was gone, at least she had her sons, at least she had a future. But now that everyone is gone, who's she going to live for? What does she have to live for? And of course, the good religious answer is God, right? She's, she's an Israelite. She's, that's her, her very heritage. But then she says in verse 13, it's more bitter to me than, to, than you, talking to her daughters-in-law, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And she's, it's a graphic picture. She's saying God's hand is treating me like an enemy. He's He's beaten me up. Not in an abusive way, but just saying his sovereignty have, has destroyed my life. My God as king is dead. And so this is what it's doing. Naomi, the way this story is told, it's trying to get us to ask this question. If God is fully sovereign... He has control over every detail, and he does. That's what the scriptures tell you. Why do these kind of things happen? And to say that God is king, he really does have control over every detail. What you look like, where you were born, when you were born, the talents and gifts and skills you have, 
the family you have, uh, the job you'll end up with, the, the spouse you have, uh, when you will die, when you will live. I mean, God's rule and power, according to the scriptures, extends over everything, often in ways that we're uncomfortable with. And so, I mean, just, just think about this. This God is wholly sovereign. This is the way that our confession of faith, Westminster, summarizes this, this truth. That God, our creator, upholds everything. He upholds everything. He directs everything. He disposes and rules all creatures, all their actions, everything, from the greatest all the way down to the least. And he does so through his wise and holy providence, just the way he rules the world. And it's according to his uh, trustworthy and infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will, all for the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. I know your head probably just exploded. That's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of theological terms. But it's saying the same thing that Naomi is. That God is not let off the hook because bad things happen to us. She's a good theologian. God is sovereign. It's, it's the same thing the scriptures say. Job, losing all of his children. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's, it's not blaming Satan. It's not just, I'm going to suck it up. It's no, God, God allowed this. Or Isaiah 45, where God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Even Jesus. It was the Lord's will to crush him, says the scriptures. So all, everything you read in the Gospels, what Jesus went through, that was Jesus willingly volunteering to submit himself to God's sovereignty here on earth. I mean, it is more nuanced than this. You can't blame God for everything. We have a will. We have decisions to make. And you read the Westminster Confession. This is the second paragraph describing the way God controls things. And what it does, it says, okay, let's look at this from our perspective. How does God control my heart? Well, he lets me make decisions. So the way it describes it says these things happen under God's control through second causes, which is the theological way of saying God is so powerful, so wise, so gracious, so condescending, and so high and lifted up that he runs your life in a way where he works out all things for good, including your decisions. They went to Moab. That was part of God's plan. And God does so. He rules the world in a way that doesn't make him the author or approver of, approver of evil. I, mean, I know your head's got to be exploding, but it's, it's this truth, right? Naomi's saying God allowed this to happen. And I'm guilty. And she says that later. We'll talk about that's my third point. I'm getting ahead. But you're saying, God's hand did this to me. He took away my husband and my sons. 
even though they made the decision to go to Moab to escape the famine. God is the author of her story, the author of your story. How do you make sense of that? If you look at Naomi, I mean, in Bethlehem, this is the place where God's supposed to provide. And now there's famine. And the scriptures say that famine comes in, in the promised land because of unbelief, because of sin. So you could say that God lit the fire that made them run to Moab. God got Elimelech moving. God's hand allowed this. Let me ask you, are you comfortable with this kind of talk? I mean, I know for some of this is like picking a scab, it hurts. But for others of us, it's also healing to know that somebody is up there and, and can see from 20,000 feet where we're going, that it's not pointless. But really, do you, are you, do you attribute everything that has happened to you and will happen to you to God's sovereign plan for your life? At some point... I mean, maybe this is you. Maybe you ask, okay, well, what's the point of trusting God if he's going to lead me in paths of sorrow like Naomi? Why would I want him to be my king? Some of us respond with cynicism. You know, some God, I thought he's supposed to fight for me. Why is he letting me go through this? And so we stomp off and get angry and grumble and complain and don't look back. This is Naomi. This is where she's at. She's wrestling with God's frowning providence. It's just not working out for her right now. And these bitter circumstances are threatening to give her a bitter, to to bring out bitterness in her heart. But she's wrestling. And this is the point I want you to, to see. So we got this dark background. This is where she came from. She's in, in Moab trapped and she makes this conscious decision as she's trying to hold together God's sovereignty and God's mercy. She just says two words in verse 6. She arose. She got up and she made the decision to go back towards the God that she doesn't understand. And she's going back to Bethlehem because she heard God's providing. Which is a pretty powerful thing to do. If you let me be a, a counselor, a past, pastoral at the moment, it's one of the most difficult things to do when you're in the darkness. To get out of bed, to come towards God. I mean, we, we would apply this by going to church um, and deal with God's people. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, I'm speaking from experiences. I, mean, I pr- was back in the pulpit two weeks after my dad's funeral. Of not really knowing what to do, but just... I don't know what to do, so I'm going to keep talking and, and process these things. And so look, if you are in Naomi's situation, this is what you need to do to arise, um, to put one foot in front of the other, to come to church. And here's why. It's because you give, just by coming here on a Sunday morning, you're giving God opportunities to minister to your bitterness that staying home will not do. 
I mean, that one decision, if you know Naomi's story, brings her from death into life. She gets a grandson simply by going back to Bethlehem. It gave God the opportunity in ways she could never imagine to minister to her. William Cooper, the, the great hymn writer, who was chronically depressed. This is a great song. He says, Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It's the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain. Which is his way of saying poetically and in the hymn, sometimes when you come to church, God shows up. <laughs> and it's surprising but when you arise, when you make that really simple step of crawling in the direction towards God, you're giving him an opportunity to shine a light in your darkness. And you're giving him an opportunity to wipe away your tears through God's people. In Naomi's situation, it was Ruth who was just silently standing by her. But she's gone back home to God, to Bethlehem, and to, her, to God's people. And so, this is Naomi. She's battered and embittered and trying to figure this all out. And so that's what I'm saying. This is the beautiful part of Naomi's story. It's trying to show you that it doesn't matter whether you run in God's direction, whether you walk, whether you crawl, or just on your face. What matters is the direction. We're not going to have all the answers, but we can tell you what God reveals about himself in the scriptures. And it's, it's the beginning of the journey. It's the beginning of healing. Right. Let's look at it a little more deeply. Look at Naomi. As she wrestles, as she's walking home, she, you can tell just the way she talks. She really is trying to make sense of God the Almighty and Yahweh the Lord who is gracious and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ha trying to hold those things together with her circumstances. She's, she's in danger of being embittered. Because when she gets to Bethlehem in verse 20, or it's verse 20, this is what she describes herself. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me Why would you call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Did you, did you hear it? She's got two descriptions for God. His covenant name, Yahweh, which is the God who is with you, the God who saved Israel from Egypt, who, ha who saw their compassion and acted quite dramatically. The God who, who hears and acts and responds to hurt. Who carried Israel through the desert in the same way a father carries a son. And then you have the Almighty who orchestrated, who allowed what she's going through. She's walking home. She's walking towards God with questions. Bitter. Saying, God has given me a bitter cup to drink. This doesn't taste good. And Libby Groves 
is a widow and a Hebrew professor from Westminster. And she describes it this way. She says, Naomi's cry here has all the depth of covenantal grief about it. This, this quote's in your bulletin in the outline. And she says, sure, maybe Yahweh could be expected to stand against some Moabite girls, those who do not know God. But Naomi is an Israelite. She's an insider. She's a member of the covenant, one of his own children. And yet his hand has persecuted her. I mean, you have this deep, ancient, forever-binding anguish in her complaint. Yahweh is her God, and yet he is against her. And he has not only allowed, but orchestrated the many holocausts of which she is the sole survivor, left destitute and without hope. And that hurts. You might expect to be treated badly by some stranger on the street, but not by your father, not by your dad. So here's what I want you to see. Naomi shows us that we are free to lament, to, to cry out, to say, God, I don't understand. I know this is who you say you are. I know you are in control. But how do these come together right here, right now? It's an act of faith to say, I'm bitter. I know it, I mean, I re I've read the commentaries and I've heard some sermons on Naomi and you can tell why the academics aren't in, in the, the counseling office. <laughs> of, but, but really, this is biblical faith in action, crawling home towards God, holding these promises and confusing circumstances and trying to put them together and saying, God, will you help me? Listen to some of the Psalms. Every night I flood my bed with tears. That's Psalm 6. How long, O oh God, will you forget me forever? It's Psalm 13, or Psalm 22 is the famous one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Covenantal anguish. My God, you are mine. Psalm 77 is, is almost snarky. God, have you forgotten to be gracious? Have you forgotten who you are? Or Psalm 88, as we read, darkness is my only friend. Is anyone going to praise your name when I'm in the grave? How can I talk about your steadfast love if I'm dead? I mean, do you know how to pray like this? I mean, I'm learning. It, it, it's not easy. But the gospel, a redemption according to Ruth, what, what Naomi being put here in the company of Job, in the company of David, in the company of the psalmist. She's teaching us to say, God, I have questions. I want you to answer them. I'm going to crawl toward you. Please make this better. And I think we need, we need to be able to do this on a Sunday morning. To not save it for the funeral where we can't think straight and you can't see straight. Because a lot of times, I mean, I've been to churches. I read an article this week where a pastor said he was in prison and this, these well-meaning Christians set, had the prisoners who were stuck there, some with life sentences, saying, all my problems will disappear when I'm in the presence of Jesus. 
That's not how it works. I mean, you've got all, the whole story of the Bible is just trying to make sense of these things. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They weren't saved from the furnace. It was just God with them in the furnace. They still had to go through the fire. So what the gospel does, what Naomi does, she teaches us to say, it's okay to be emotionally honest. It's okay to say, God, I don't get you. I don't understand this right now. I may even be angry. And when you aim that at God, it becomes a prayer and not just an emotional outburst. Because our culture will say, just stuff it. You know, don't, don't let your emotions out. Um, that would probably be more of the Christian conservative way of dealing with things, that emotions are bad, religion and, and spirituality is good. You know, think about heaven, maybe you'll feel better eventually. But the, the Western way, our way of doing things, is says just explode. Just let it out, you'll feel better eventually. It's in Daniel Tiger, stop three times when you're angry and you'll feel better. <laughs> it, the Christian gets to pray to a God honestly and say, I don't get this. You get to cry out to a person. Now, there's one more, one more aspect to Naomi's plight, and she's beating herself up, beating herself down with God's verdict. And she's going through all these things saying, this is my fault. God has put me in the defendant's chair. He has slammed the gavel and said, she is guilty. And because I am guilty, he took away my sons. He took away my husband. I mean, she is as groveling in the dust. Is that true? I mean, if, if Naomi comes and sits in your dinner table and she's talking like this, don't call me Naomi, call me, call me bitter. God has testified against me. Would you let her say that? If you look at her, the story, did Elimelech sin when he went to Moab? Some of the commentators would say, yeah, maybe. Doesn't seem like a good idea, but that could also be Monday morning quarterbacking. Did Mary and Joseph sin when they went to Egypt? I mean, if they're your kids and they're hungry, you can repent all you want, but there's no food on the table. You're, you're still going to go find food for your kids, especially if their name's weak and frail. Malon and Kilion married outside the faith. That's pretty clear in the scriptures. You shouldn't do that. It's not don't marry outside of your, your race. It's don't marry Canaanite women because they will lead you astray from Yahweh. Naomi allowed that to happen. And you have two women who are barren, who went through all, probably went through all the pain of just saying, I can't have kids. God's cursing me. And then pull back even further, you got the whole Bible story that everyone has sins because they're sinners. They're totally depraved. I mean, you could, if Naomi wants to find sin, you could find sin. But here's the beauty of the story is it doesn't attribute blame to anyone. It just says this stuff happened. It doesn't draw a straight line from what they did to Naomi's circumstance. And so I think... This is what the text is trying to get you to do, to say, sure, there's, 
bad decisions that were made. But God's verdict is not, God's verdict in saying we're guilty doesn't mean he can draw a straight line from that one thing we did 10 years ago to my circumstances right now. I mean, how would you be able to know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure my sister has a scar on her forehead from when we were kids because you, know, you shouldn't throw rocks in the general direction of other people, especially your family members. How do you draw a line from that hurtful thing I did 25 to 30 years ago to some horrible thing in the future? I don't have that wisdom. I don't know. That's the point. This is beautifully ambiguous. But, so here you have Naomi. How do you crawl out of this hole? This is how we're going to end. She's beating herself up. She's making connections I don't think she's supposed to be making. And yet we all feel guilt when, when this stuff happens. She's saying, God the Almighty has orchestrated these things. He's beaten me up with his sovereignty. The covenant Lord who's supposed to be near feels far away. Darkness is her only friend. How do you lament in a way that draws you back towards God instead of pushing you away? And for Naomi, this is the answer. You walk back towards Bethlehem, the place where God provides. When Naomi, that's all she knew. God, the Almighty, was giving food again. She went in that direction. For, she went with her guilt, with her bitterness, her questions, her hurt, her pain, her theological confusion. But she did so in faith. And for us, we have the same application. Go, run, walk, or crawl towards the place where God provides. But we do so with a much clearer picture than Naomi has. Naomi had no idea what the end of her story was. This is how we live. But we as Christians, we look at Bethlehem differently. Bethlehem is the place where God provided hope. Where the greater David was born, Jesus. This is the birthplace of the Messiah. This is where the bread of life was born, Jesus. The one who says, whoever comes to me in faith, this is all I want. Just, this is the will of the one who sent me. Believe in the bread of life, and whoever eats this bread will live forever. You won't be stuck in death, in darkness. You'll come out on the other side in resurrection. And this is where all these things start to come together. Because we don't go lamenting to a place, we go lamenting to a person, Jesus. And Jesus does three things for us. He laments for us. As in, in our place. And Jesus shows us how to lament bitter circumstances without becoming bitter and running away in disobedience. Just think of Gethsemane. I mean, his whole life is, he knows he's aiming towards this moment where he's going to die, where God's power and God's mercy are going to come together against him. But in Gethsemane, as it becomes clear, and he starts to drink this cup, the cup of God's wrath, and he cries out, God, I don't understand, bleeding, sweating, right, sweating blood. It falls on his face as if he's dead. He's still going. He's still aiming in the direction of God. 
This is Jesus lamenting perfectly for you. But then he goes and through a lament, through a cry, takes away your guilt so that you can't say God is punishing me. Because when you see him on the cross dying, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That deep covenantal anguish that Naomi is experiencing. He really is being judged. He really can say darkness is my only friend because God has cast him out. He really is being beaten down by God's verdict. He's being called guilty for our sin. For all the, the mysterious, deliberate, and willful ways we have offended a holy God. And yet, through that moment, this is how God, through his power and his mercy, provides for you. That because of this mysterious, horrible, yet beautiful intersection of God's providence, we lament knowing that our sorrows is never punishment from God. Not a one-to-one -one correspondence. As a Christian, God, you cannot say, God is out to get me. <laughs> because it's already been paid for. The punishment for all of our failures has fell once for all on Christ. And you are now God's child, and nothing will ever change that. And as you go through these things, you call it discipline, call it whatever you want, it's God teaching you how to trust him in pleasure and in pain. And he, he holds on and gives you that assurance through his resurrection. This is the journey Jesus takes you on, through death into his resurrection. He gives us this rock-solid assurance that he'll never leave us, nor forsake us with a hope and saying this world will come to an end and say because I walked out of the grave you will walk out of the grave and death where is your sting death is nothing more than a nap you wake up with him at the beginning the beginning of the a new beginning <laughs> And so look, this is, this is the redemption according to Ruth. Just as God brought Naomi from death into life through the birth of a son in Bethlehem, God does the same for you, Jesus Christ. He gives you a hope. And so we are called to then lament in light of this mercy. This is the journey. I mean, you felt it this morning as you go down into the darkness, you climb up as you crawl towards the place where God shows you how his power and how his love come together to fight for you and say, I don't know anything else, but I know that's true, and I know my God loves me. And so now I'm going to yell at my heart, say, heart, please believe this. Holy Spirit, help me believe this. God, I don't get it. How long? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Please be gracious. You just start talking. That you stop letting your circumstances tell your heart what is real. And you start preaching the gospel to yourself. And over time, you know, painful step by painful step, maybe even through your whole life, God will bring you home. 
Right? You take God's promises and his character and you bring them together and you, you get to see it in a person. So, trying to figure out how to end this thing. This is what I want you to see. As you lament, the bread of life says you don't lament alone. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for those who will be comforted. I love the way Nicholas Wolterstoff, I don't know how to say his name, he's a Christian philosopher who wrote a book called Lament for His Son. He lost his son. And he says, Blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? Who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, the new heavens and the new earth, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, who break out in tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is no one blind, and so they ache whenever they see someone unseeing. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, no one will be hungry. And so when they see somebody hungry, they just ache whenever they see someone starving. But those who mourn are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there's no one who is falsely accused. And so they ache when they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm, there's no one who fails to see God. And they ache whenever they see somebody failing to see him see someone unbelieving. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm there's no one who suffers oppression, who then ache when they see someone beaten down. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm there's no one without dignity, and so they ache when they see somebody treated with indignity. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace there's neither death nor tears, and who ache when they see someone crying over tears, tears over death. He says, mourners are aching visionaries because they know that comfort is coming and that comfort is available. And so go and learn what it means that blessed are those who mourn for the gospel will comfort you. Let's pray. Now, Father, it is sobering this morning to, to enter into the darkness with Naomi. And thank you that you have given us this great example of painful faith. And most off, mostly we thank you for the gospel that does not leave us alone, who tells us there is a, a hope beyond what that we can see. And so I pray that you would give all of us here by your spirit uh, eyes to see you, to feel your presence, even as we come to you with our questions. So teach us to lament in light of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.